0: There are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other is that heat comes from the furnace. To avoid the first danger, one should plant a garden, preferably where there is no grocer, to confuse the issue. To avoid the second, he should lay a split of good oak on the andirons, preferably where there is no furnace, and let it warm his shins while a February blizzard tosses the trees outside. If one has cut, split, hauled, and piled his own good oak and let his mind work the while, he will remember much about where the heat comes from and with a wealth of detail denied those who spend the week in a town astride a radiator.
1: I think two important traits in being a scientist are a sense of wonder about the world. So not taking things that are normal for granted, but trying to understand how they work, what they are, looking at them in different ways, doing a headstand and looking at the same thing and seeing how it looks a little bit different from that perspective. And then at the same time, when something seems strange, not just letting that pass by. When something seems weird, it most certainly is weird. And if you really focused on it and thought about it, you probably could figure out what it was or, you know, how it works or whatever the question was and learn just a little bit more about the universe. Welcome to Ecology, to Ecology U, from, from the University of Buffalo. Natural science research and, and the stories behind them. My name's Adam Wilson. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography. I've kind of been all over the place. I have a bachelor's in biology, concentrating in ecology, and then I did a master's of earth science, and then I worked for an NGO for a year, and then I did Peace Corps for two years, and then I went back for a PhD in ecology, and then I post in ecology, and then now I'm in a geography department.
0: Tell me about this Peace Corps thing. I didn't know this.
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I did uh, sort of standard two-year service in Morocco in northwestern Africa in a pretty small village of about 500 in between the Mediterranean climate region and the Sahara Desert in the Atlas Mountains. One part of the assignment was to help the people that lived there that had been using the forest forever understand why it was now a protected forest and they were not supposed to do all the things that they used to do, like graze their goats, cut wood and other extractive things from the forest. So I worked to Basically record a list of the plant species that grew there and talk to people about those plants. It was almost like an ethnobotanical survey of trying to understand which plants people used and how they used them. Because some uses were acceptable if it wasn't, like, you weren't supposed to cut down trees, but you could harvest fruits and you could harvest herbs. So trying to understand what the potential resources were there that could still be used.
0: So how does that go over with training people to change behaviors? You know, environmental education is notorious for having trouble changing behaviors. You have to build awareness and then knowledge and then the attitudes change. That's what we're taught in the environmental ed field. But how do you do that when your entire livelihood has been spent doing something else?
1: There was a, a woman's cooperative that harvested the nuts of this particular tree called argan, Argania spinosa. And the, the nuts contain an oil that you could extract that is pretty delicious as like an alternative to olive oil, and it's now actually being used in much of cosmetic products. It's actually now here in the U.S. It's been popular in Europe for maybe a decade. And so this is a, a product that they can continue to harvest sustainably from the forest. And so I worked with that woman's cooperative to help make them more efficient in doing what they wanted to do, which was basically harvest and then sell this oil. So I did like computer skills and other things that, that all of those activities were to um, help them identify that there was value in the forest, essentially value in the forest that they could actually make money, make a livelihood without cutting the trees down, without grazing goats in a way that was degrading the forest.
0: So this leads to a lifelong interest in desert plants.
1: Kind of, yeah. I guess I, I did develop a, an interest in yeah arid regions and also the challenges of taking somewhat abstract kind of ecological theory and trying to apply it in situations that are difficult, which is m- most of them. <laughs> You know, as a as a just recently graduated undergrad, I found myself literally on my knees in the in the tundra, measuring literally measuring grass growing. There were individual tufts of grass and other plants that I would, that would go out with calipers every few days and measure how it was was growing through the year. And then we were comparing sites that had um, using a snow fence that basically added snow, so there was like more snow and less snow, a gradient really of excess snow the experience was profound in that it it seemed like such a an esoteric pointless thing to do right to be in this this well it's
0: as exciting as watching grass grow (laughs) exactly right
1: (laughs) Um, so you know just just imagine that situation of i don't know how many total blades of grass i was measuring probably in the hundreds but the idea that you could make sense of of that observation of actually measuring grass growing in this one little place next to this one little lake in northern alaska and that 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 question was somehow tied to this much broader question of how this ecosystem was likely to respond to changes in the future just made me realize that the the power of, of science to untangle these really complex mysteries and questions that we have about how the natural world works. So it wasn't just me measuring grass. There were lots of other people all around the world. And, you know, my part of it was very small. But it was embedded in this much larger network of scientists that were asking similar questions in repeated and in different ways. The, the grand total of all of that is sort of pushing our knowledge about this ecosystem and the global carbon budgets, pushing all of that forward. And, and so that, that experience, it, it really was a pretty profound experience that made me want to learn how to, how to make that my life. So actually, I applied to, applied to grad schools from Morocco. So I had to take, a uh, from the village, it was like a 20-minute taxi ride to a larger village. And by taxi, I mean like a, an old car with way too many people in it. Uh, and then take a, either a bus or another taxi to the closest city, which was the closest place that you could get internet, and then... Um, use the, the really slow computers to access and, and search for different graduate programs. So that was many, many weekends of, of time was basically reading um, different graduate programs and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So I started just reading programs, reading about different opportunities, applied to several different places, and the one that I ended up accepting was at the University of Connecticut into an ecology and evolutionary biology program and it was to work on a project in South Africa around Robin Island
0: and north of Cape Town Toronto market
1: That's how I initially got connected to this region of southern Africa near Cape Town, which is really a a fascinating place. It's about the size of of the northeastern U.S. It has about 12,000 vascular plant species, which is similar richness to tropical rainforests.
0: Right. That's hugely diverse. Yeah,
1: but it's actually pretty arid shrubland. So from a distance, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there was really not much biodiversity there, not much interesting. And actually, when Darwin visited, he he rounded the Cape. Um, I'm not going to remember his exact quote, but it was something like, uh, I've never seen a more boring place. so it was one of the few cases that that Darwin was absolutely wrong about something um, and it turns out they stopped to spend a few days and when they got off the boat there was no housing and so he had to travel like through the night to find housing so i think he was just in a grumpy mood but yeah so it turns out it's a it's an incredibly biodiverse area and it's also undergone a uh, pretty major habitat transformation. So the vast majority of the the ecosystem that harbors this biodiversity has been transitioned into agriculture primarily. And, And it's also where in the social dimension, they went through this period of apartheid, strong racial segregation that ended fairly recently in the mid 90s.
0: I greet you all in the name of peace, democracy and freedom for all.
1: And so they're still very much in the midst of recovering from that. And it's going to take a lot more time before the memories of that and the legacy of that is is going to work out. And it's also a place that is expected over the coming decades to undergo pretty rapid climate change. This region of South Africa is likely to get even drier over the coming decades. So you have this, this really biodiverse region, lots of biodiversity. You have this really complex social history that makes the social dimension kind of complicated and, and changing fast. And it's this is all within this larger issue of rapidly changing environmental conditions.
0: What's the closest to death you've ever been in a field research season? <laughs> I guess I haven't had any near-death experiences.
1: I've, I've, I guess I've had a few kind of run-ins. I've had a, a baboon steal an apple out of my hand that's pretty close and baboons are pretty scary <laughs> yeah they're, scary not nice. they're, they're not nice they're not nice. They're large and they have large teeth and they're um sophisticated in their eye movement i mean they're really you'd be forgiven for thinking that they had a very human-like awareness of mm-hmm. what's going on and so i there was a, a an adult female on a rock maybe 30 feet from me or so and i was i was getting out of a car actually and i i was aware of her there and so i was kind of like being a little careful with And and whatnot. She was pretty far away and just sort of sitting there and I was pulling stuff out of the car and I had, I think I was taking an apple from the car and putting it into my backpack, which was on top of the car. And before I knew it, I felt her hand wrap around my wrist that was holding the apple and yanking (laughs) it down and simultaneously pulling the apple out of my hand. And before I knew what had happened, she basically come that 30 feet, grabbed my arm, taken the apple out of it and gone back the 30 feet and was sitting on the rock eating the, eating the apple. Yeah, I did my part to reinforce this, this connection between humans and, and food. If you go after the people, you'll get the food. I was at the United Nations Climate Conference a couple of months ago, and I was struck with how the conversations that were happening... They're, they're very different from the kind of conversation that, that happened at a scientific conference. So there were a few scientists there, but it was more politicians that were like trying to, to understand how to address the problem of, climate change, both either to to mitigate it or
0: to adapt to it. Climate change is the defining threat of our time. Our duty to each other and to future generations is to raise ambition.
1: But the way that people are talking about climate change was so different from what I'm used to, because I'm used to scientists, you know, going sort of down their, their individual rabbit holes of trying to solve one particular part of the big puzzle, right, so we all have our own little our own little question. About I always call
0: them the dents in the golf ball. Okay, the dents in the golf ball. There yep. you go.
1: Right. So they're they're so focused in the the little dent in the golf ball that they you know rarely pull their head up and discuss the big shape of the the golf ball. But at this conference, everybody is trying to talk about the big golf ball. Like you know how do we how do we get 200 plus countries to agree to a common framework to reduce emissions so that we can avoid the worst outcomes of anthropogenic climate change. And so as a scientist going there, it was just really it was it was eye-opening how the people that are are making decisions and proposals and writing policies about how to address global environmental change probably don't have the background to really understand like papers that I've written about climate change. And it's not that they're they're not intelligent because they're certainly intelligent. It's just they've developed like a different skill set that's more about communication, negotiation, policy
0: And it is crucial for all countries to follow through on their Paris commitments. I urge you to use the 2020 revision of the nationally determined contributions to close the 2030 emissions gap.
1: And less about understanding physical and biological mechanisms of of climate change. So being at that conference made me sort of take a step back from the research that I've been doing and try to ask myself the question, Why does what I do matter? Does it matter? The United Nations has a set of what they call the sustainable development goals, which are sort of targets that most people would agree would be good to work towards and try to achieve. So things like reducing hunger, conserving ecosystem function, providing water. So they recently had a contest challenging people to use data, really of any kind, to try to use data sets in creative ways to provide some information and to spur action on climate change. So with my South African colleagues, we submitted a project basically to this challenge using satellite data to monitor how ecosystems change through time and how they are how they respond to variations in in climate. In today's data-rich world, we actually can learn about important questions using data that maybe were not collected for that purpose. So just as we move through the world, and every time we pull out our cell phone and it pings the cell phone tower, that's a, a little bit of information about where we were yep. at that time. When we swipe a credit card, when we log into a website, when we, you know, all of these different things are, are generating this little blip of data somewhere that most of the time is not collected or used. We should be doing what we can to harness these large data sets to improve the the public good. So in the same way that, you know, if we knew when a flu epidemic was happening and we were able to get ahead of it, we actually could reduce the transmission of flu through, you know, a city or a a country or the world even. So when you're thinking about doing any kind of science with spatial data, that's where geographic information systems come in. So GIS is a—it's almost just a way of thinking about handling spatial data. It's a way of representing spatial data digitally in a computer so that you maintain the spatial attributes of it. You know, many of our environmental challenges, many questions in environmental science are inherently spatial. So everything happens somewhere. And whether you're talking about something that's quite localized all the way up to global climate change, which you could argue is one of the biggest environmental issues because it literally does impact the entire globe, but it doesn't impact everywhere the same, right? And so that spatial component and spatial variability is a characteristic of environmental challenges, and it's also a place that we can look to actually understand and improve our understanding of the mechanisms of that problem. So by looking at how pollution moves through the atmosphere, we can understand what makes pollution move and we can think about ways to reduce the the impacts of it. So a degree in GIS is actually really flexible. If you think about where you interact with maps in your day-to-day life. Pull out your cell phone, see sure, a map, get in your car. Often you'll you'll see a map on you. You know, you do a Google search and there's a map next to it. So somebody built those maps. They don't just happen on their own. Somebody wrote the code that generates the map. And so GIS is useful from the environmental sciences to the business world to social science, all all across the board. There's a growing trend towards incorporating that spatial information into all the dimensions of of modern life. Really, I mean anything from transportation to Food to everything. There's sort of maps inherent in getting the banana from Costa Rica to your grocery store. Right? Just about anything you think of involves that that spatial dimension. The Map of Life is a collaborative, multi-institution project to make the world's information about where biodiversity is to make that information accessible. if you think about sort of old school map of life would be a set of field guides. You pull the tree field guide off the shelf and you can flip to a species and you can see, you know, oh, the sugar maple goes from Eastern Canada down to Georgia and over to sure. Barbara, yeah, absolutely. Ohio. absolutely. So you can see those little range maps of where the species exist. And so what the Map of Life is working to do is compile all of the world's information about where species are into a, a common framework that makes it much more accessible so that you can get all the species that you want and look at the different sources of information about where those species are uh, in order to learn about biodiversity. Uh, as you can probably imagine, for, for most species, we have very limited information about where they actually exist.
0: I love the quote of, great science usually starts with, hey, that's weird.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's my favorite part of, of science is that first step towards seeing the opening, seeing the question clearly, and then moving forward. Because at that point, anything is possible, right?
0: How can we begin to change the long-seated traditional and social values that we find in certain places? You know, the, the challenge is that
1: awareness right it's the it's the ability to place yourself into your larger context which includes you know the all the social dimensions that we're used to thinking about it you know where have families of one form or another we have neighbors of some kind we have our community we have our local government we have you know there, there are lots of, of social levels to our our surroundings our, our environment if you will um, but I think that often in our in our day-to-day lives, we're somewhat separated, or we feel separated. Not that we are, but we feel separated from our more environmental or ecological surroundings. Our food comes from the grocery store, and we're, we're disconnected from the farm. Our houses are built with wood, but we don't actually see the wood, and we don't we don't know where it came from. One part of the process of becoming more aware of our current. Ecological crises is to become more aware of our immediate sort of environmental and ecological surroundings.
0: It almost inevitably has to start with kids. How are we going to train the population to eat healthier? Well, we're going to change how lunches in schools work. How are we going to recycle? Well, we can't really make people recycle back at home, but if we start to train students early, Peppa, stop. What? We don't put bottles in the rubbish bin. They can be recycled. What does that mean? In first grade, they're recycling, and then the, you know their first grader comes home and says, "Daddy, why do we throw out all these bottles?" Recycle, recycle, we're going to recycle. Suddenly, there's a pressure coming from our youngest generation, and so many things like that I've seen come up through the ranks of. You know, turn off your lights, turn off the water when you brush your teeth. Not that I think anybody even does that anymore, but, you know, don't smoke in the house. All of these things, wear your seatbelt, have come about because we've changed the thinking of our youngest generation.
1: If you're going to have a conversation, if you want that person to really hear you, you have to not be such a scientist. You need to let go of that excruciating attention to detail that makes you a good scientist. You need to let go of that. And, and try to, to see what you're talking about from the other person's perspective. Because without that, they're just simply not going to hear you. And, and that's something that I think scientists don't like to hear because we've worked so hard to sort of build that attention to detail. It's really, it's really a really challenging situation because if you, if you relax it, you, you open yourself up to the risk that someone is going to misinterpret what you say, right? If you leave the caveat out... Right. Absolutely. Then later that could come back to bite you. But at the same time, if you put all the caveats in there,
0: you've lost your audience. You've lost
1: your audience. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's actually a book by that <laughs> by that name that I'm kind of referencing there. I'm forgetting the author. Called "Don't Be Such a Scientist." But in in that he argues that when when communicating outside of a, you know academic journals, scientists need to kind of relax the attention to detail that is so prioritized when doing research. Right. You know, we're trained from the beginning of our academic career, you need to be accurate, you need to be specific. If there's a caveat, you need to say it, you need to like describe in the methods, you need to say everything that you did exactly so that someone could repeat it. But when you maintain that level of, of technical accuracy and detail, it effectively shuts down communication with most people.
0: My best thermometer is my wife. And if I can talk about my research to my wife and if she doesn't make the Charlie Brown teacher noise at me, then I know I'm on the right path. But as soon as she just walks out of the room, and goes, bah, 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 then then I know that, that, you know, it's it's too much and I got to back it down. Yeah,
1: language is definitely an issue, and that's a challenging problem because every field has sort of technical language shortcuts that we use to to define and reference common concept that can vary quite a bit in meaning from, from field to field. Once you've really identified, like, what is the... What is the important question? What is the question that will move us forward? Or what is the question that will solve this
0: problem? That's the that's the most But that's the trick too, right? Because oh, we, don't, it's hard. It's very we hard. don't know what we don't know. Exactly. You know, exactly. The more you learn, the less you realize that you actually know in the first place. Right. I told my students the when I, my diploma came in the mail, very exciting day, and you know, I officially finished my PhD. In that moment, I never felt so dumb because you just we don't know what it is that we're not sure of. But to be able to contribute to that is crucially important. To Ecology U from the University of Buffalo. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Adam Wilson from the Geography Department at the University of Buffalo. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Henshu. And I'm Executive Producer Kodiak Allen. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
1: Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and like us on Facebook at Ecology U for episodes, updates, and extras. Editing by Megan Perron, Parker Chase, Tiffany Green. Writing and research by Jacob Leali, Megan Wettlaufer, Kodiak Allen. Public relations done by Joanna Pavasneris. Today's music was composed by me, Jacob Lealy.